Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Chapter 6, page 892. So now that we finish the parentheses, he's going back to the theme he was discussing in chapter 4. And there he discussed the name Hashem, what the name Hashem represents. That the name Hashem represents, the word is, the basic word is Hoive, Havia, that God's ability to create. And the Yud shows in constancy, the fact that God is constantly creating. And then he described the verse that the name Hashem and Elohim is the analogy of the sun and the shield that covers over the sun. And he says that this explains, this expresses God's greatness and God's strength, God's ability to restrain himself. But now he's going to begin to explain the name Elohim. Till now he explained at length the name Hashem, yud Hey vav what that represents. That represents God's infinite ability to create something from nothing. And now he's going to explain what the name Elohim represents. Because the verse states, Shemesh Umogen Hashem Elohim. That the names Hashem and the name Elohim are analogous to the Shemesh, to the sun, and to its shield. So he explained the name Hashem. And the name Hashem is represented by the sun, which gives off light, which creates energy. And the name Elohim is represented by the shield which conceals over the light. And now he's going to explain the name Elohim. Now the name Elohim is the name which indicates the attribute of Gavura and Simpson. Each of God's names denote a, partic- denote a particular divine attribute. The name pronounced Kio, for example, indicates the attribute of Chesed, as in the verse. The kindness of Heo endures throughout the day. Likewise, the name that indicates the attribute of Gevora, or Simsom, is Elohim. When the light of, Ein, of the Ein Sof garbs itself in, in the attribute of Gevora to bring about its own Simsom and concealment, it is known by the name Elohim. Hence, it is also numerically equal to Hateva, nature, which equals 86. Nature signifies the order, the ordered way of the world. Because of its repetitiveness, people have become accustomed to it, and it arouses no sense of wonder. No thought is given to the divine power and life force, which is concealed in those things which have an established order and are repeated constantly. Words, although, although the divine energy is constantly creating each and every each and every object and is continuously creating it but because it continues to create it from moment to moment and the laws of nature appear to be repetitive and very rigid the word teva which is hateva which is the same numerical value as the word alukim hateva could also mean something that's like etched something that's like it's very rigid. It's so the laws of nature seem to be very etched and very permanent because it repeats itself. The sun rises and the sun sets every day. It doesn't change. 
So because it happens so often, therefore, we don't pay attention. Therefore, it covers up and it conceals. And you don't notice and you're no longer aware of the miracle. Earlier he explained that in truth, nature is a miracle. There's no difference between nature and a miracle. Nature itself is a miracle. As a matter of fact, nature is a greater miracle than all the miracles in the Torah. The splitting of the sea is nothing in comparison to this cup of water. That this cup of water exists right this moment is a greater miracle because this is being created this very moment, something from nothing. It shouldn't exist. It exists only because of this powerful creative energy that's forcing it and bringing it into existence at this very moment. So it's dynamic, it's vibrant, it's, it, it's an event. The act of creation is nothing short of the great. It's the greatest miracle. Nature is a miracle. Everything is a miracle. Existence is a greater miracle than miracles. But we don't notice. We don't pay attention. We take it for granted. Why? Because it's repetitive. It repeats itself. And God creates the world over and over and over again, each and every moment. And He creates it in a way that the laws of nature, the sun rises and the sun sets, and this process continues from moment to moment, from day to day, without any, without any change. Therefore, we just take it for granted. We don't even pay attention. We don't even notice. So much so, we don't even notice. We don't even notice that there is an energy. We don't even notice that there is a force, that there is an energy, a divine energy. All we notice is the body, the material, the physical. That's what we see, that's what's prominent, and that's, that's reality to us. So this is the name Elohim. The name Elohim is God's ability to totally hide and conceal His divine energy, His own divine energy, by constant repetition. By creating through the power of Elohim, which is the power of nature, and by this constant repetitiveness, he creates a um, he creates he conceals his divine energy. The supernal light constantly creates the world ex nihilo, a feat more wondrous than the splitting of the Red Sea. The divine name Elohim, however, conceals this light so that it will not be visible to created beings. And it appears as though the world exists, without having to be constantly renewed, as if permanently programmed, and is conducted according to the laws of nature, independent of any supernal, supernatural influence. Thus, even though these, even though, even those things which are observed to undergo some degree of renewal, are also perceived as the way of nature, inasmuch as they follow these seemingly immutable laws. Hasidus explains that the word nature, how do you say in Hebrew? Teva. Teva. The word nature has a number of meanings, including entrenched and submerged. This means that the laws of nature are so entrenched in creation that it is difficult to detect the ongoing process of its renewal. Additionally, just as a submerged, just as a submerged object is completely concealed by water, so too is the divine life force utterly submerged and concealed within created being. So Teva is not only entrenched, Teva also comes from the word Tubu, it's submerged underwater. Just like the water covers up and conceals and the teeming life that's underneath the water, so too, because nature is so repetitive, and because we just take it for granted and we stop paying attention, and there's no novelty, therefore it seems almost natural to us 
that we take it for granted. The sun will rise. The laws of nature will continue. As if on its own. So it's not only, it's not only that it's entrenched, but it actually causes the divine energy to be totally submerged. So much so that we even forget that there is a cause, that there is, an, that there is a reason, that there is, and we just take it for granted. So the body, the physical, the material, totally covers up on the soul, on the inner, on the energy. And what's prominent? It's the material that's prominent. And the laws of nature, you totally forget on the soul, you totally forget on the, on the life force, especially the divine energy. That is totally lost and submerged in this whole cover-up called Hateva nature. Only Hashem could so con- conceal himself and entrench and cover himself up that he can hide himself, that you shouldn't notice his energy, you shouldn't notice him, you shouldn't notice his divine energy. And you shouldn't even notice the, the life force, the energy period. All you notice is the material, the external, superficial. And that seems totally natural to us. It's totally irrational, illogical. Everything, every book has an author, every, every paint, painting has an artist, but it's totally, it's not even rational, but it's totally natural to us, as if the world is on its own. Mother Nature. Speak to any self-respecting scientist. Mother Nature. Yeah, it just happened. God, what God, when God? Denies even the existence of God. We're not discussing, denying the idea that God is constantly creating the world. But even the existence that there is a God, that there is an intelligent author. That's a revolutionary statement. That's challenged, being challenged in the courts to, to even introduce to children the idea that there may be an intelligent author to life. And that's challenged by the scientists, authorities of today. Mother Nature. And it feels so natural. It's irrational. But that's the power of the name Elohim. That because nature repeats itself and because it's so deeply entrenched and therefore it totally submerges and covers up on the reality. The reality is there. Underneath the water, the reality is there. But you don't see it. Aggressively covers up. This name Elohim, not as it exists in its supernal source, but as it acts through the attribute of Gavorah, so that the world appears to be conducted in a natural manner, is a shield and a sheath for the name Havaya. The divine name Havaya, as mentioned earlier, is in explanation of the verse for a sun and a shield, is Havaya Elohim, is like the illuminating sun, while the name Elohim conceals its light as does the sun's shield, thereby enabling created beings to benefit from it. Concealing the light and life force which flows from the name Havaya and bringing creation into existence from naught. This being the purpose of Havaya, the name itself meaning to bring into existence. This light and life force is concealed by Elohim so that it should not be revealed to the creatures which would thereby become absolutely nullified. So he says, so that's what the verse means, that the sun and the shield, the sun is the name Hashem, that's the energy that creates, and the shield, that's the name Elohim, the name Elohim acts as a shield, to hide, to conceal, and therefore allow existence to exist, because otherwise existence would be totally nullified, as we discussed earlier, that if on one hand, the divine energy must constantly be within us and creating us. If the divine energy would st- stop, we would cease to exist instantly, as if we never existed. 
On the other hand, the divine energy must always also be concealed, because if the divine energy were revealed, we would also cease to exist, because then our whole being would be, we would just be an expression, an extension of the divine energy. There's nothing other than the divine energy. So in order to enable existence, in order to enable existence, um, we must have the name Elohim. That's the shield that protects us from the rays of the sun, the intense light of the sun, that enables us to see and to appreciate the sun. The quality of this Gevura and Simsum is also an aspect of Chesed through which the world is built. This is an allusion to the verse that states, For I declare that the world be built through the attribute of Chesed. For inasmuch as the world could not possibly have been created without Simsum and concealment afforded by the divine name Elohim, it follows that the ultimate intent of this Simsum is actually Chesed. So he's saying, now he's introducing a new idea, that even the name Elohim is really also kindness. It's not just a shield, it's not just concealment, but it's actually also an expression of God's kindness. As the verse says, that the world was created through kindness, through an act of kindness. The Elohim is also an act of kindness. Why? Because it's the name Elohim that enables the world to exist. It's the name Elohim that allows existence. The whole purpose of creation was that God wanted that there should be existence. God wanted that there should be an I. There should be an ego. There should be a sense of separation. And that we should have freedom of choice. And then when we overcome a difficulty and overcome a temptation and overcome a test and we sacrifice and we push ourselves and we earn and we achieve, then we receive a tremendous reward. Then we become a partner with God and creation. So it's really the ultimate kindness. The hiding, the concealment is the ultimate kindness. Like a teacher, a teacher can't overwhelm his student. A teacher who loves his student must give his student, has to limit himself, has to condense his great concept and condense and break it down to small, tiny pieces, has to spoon feed this concept like spoon feeding a baby. A parent who loves a child, a baby, you're not going to feed them a three-course dinner in French cuisine. Because out of your love of your child, you have to give them baby food, something, something that they can digest. That's the ultimate act of kindness. You have to give every person what's appropriate. If you give someone, if you overwhelm them, you give someone something that's beyond their capacity, that is an act of cruelty. We see that in, in rain. Rain, we mentioned the second blessing of the Shemoneser. We talk about God's strength. Rain comes pounding down, and it's an expression of God's strength. But rain is actually an act of kindness. Because how does the rain come down? The rain comes down in little bits, pieces. One drop, every drop is separate. Can you imagine if the rain... There was no drops. It was just one big deluge. That's a, that's a tsunami. That's a tsunami. That, that's, a, that's a flood. That's a destruction. That would destroy the world. But the rain comes down. It's broken down. Into every drop is separate. Every drop is separated. There's a space between one drop and the next. Every drop is different. And therefore, it's a kindness. The world can absorb it. The world can handle it. The world can take it. So it's an act. Actually, it's an act of kindness. So the fact that God is hiding himself, what's the purpose of God hiding himself? 
What's the purpose of God hiding himself? Yes, God is limiting and God is concealing and God is constricting and God creates nature that appears so entrenched and nature submerges the inner, the soul, the energy, the divine energy. But nevertheless, the purpose is because God wanted to create a world, our world that we live in, a world in which we can accomplish something, we can earn, we can become a partner with God in creation. It's our accomplishments, our achievement. We have an ego, we have an I, and we take our ego and refine that ego and nullify that ego and, create, and willingly choose to enter into a relationship with God. That's what makes it so precious. So the purpose, the point of the concealment is not the concealment. The whole point of the concealment is really for our benefits in order that we should be able to absorb the goodness, the blessing. Because if God would just reveal Himself, we would be totally nullified. We would never get off the ground. It's like the analogy of the teacher. If Einstein speaks on his level, he'll totally destroy his student. Even the part that the student could understand, the student's mind will be totally nullified. You must speak to the student, communicate to the student on the level of the student. So that's a tremendous act of tzimtzum, of contraction, of condensing, limitation, breaking it down into tiny parts, spoon-feeding it to the student. But that's the ultimate act of kindness. Because I'm giving the student something the student can handle. Something the student could take and receive and absorb. So he's saying on a deeper level, even the act of Gevura, even the act of Elohim, is really also an act of kindness. And he says, he says the quality of this Gevura, and the quality of this Tzimtzum, because there is a Gevura, there is a Tzimtzum that we discussed in, earlier, other parts of Tanya, which is actually a concealment, which is actually a negative. The Gevura and the Tzimtzum that creates evil, that allows for evil, where godliness is totally hidden and concealed and enables something that's the opposite of godliness. It's the antithesis of godliness. It's arrogant. That's egotistical. That's arrogant. That's the opposite of godliness and holiness. And that needs to be totally removed. That's a kavura and a tzimtzum that's meant to hide and to conceal. But here we're talking about the, the world that God created, the kosher world, the world that God created. God created the world, which has potential to be elevated to holiness. This world is created through the name Elohim, through the name of nature. This kavura, this tzimtzum, is, is actually is all kindness. God is giving us something that we can handle, we can absorb without nullifying our existence, without destroying us. So He's enabling us to be, to exist, and to accomplish the ultimate. The question is, if God is perfect, and God is perfect, why did God create an imperfect world? Why did God create a world where one human being is dependent on another human being? The poor person has to depend on the generosity of the wealthy person. Why didn't God create the world that every human being should be self-sufficient? should be a rugged individual, self-sufficient. You don't need anyone's kindness. You don't need anyone's favor. Since God is perfect, why did God create such an imperfect world? There's such an imbalance. There are haves and have-nots. Not just financially, in any area. The teacher teaches, the one who has an expertise in any field, and everyone else is dependent on him. So why did God create this imbalance? And the answer is, because God is perfect. Therefore, God created the most perfect world. 
Because what's the biggest gift that God can give us? The biggest gift that God can give us is when we could become godly and godlike. When we can become givers and creators. And the only way that we can become a giver and a creator is when we are living in a world that's imperfect and we come along and we make it perfect. There is a need, there's a want, there's a hole and we plug the hole. There's someone who needs and we generously give and create something good and share. Then we become partners with God in creation. We are not just dependent and receivers, but we become givers and creators, just like God is a giver and a creator. So it's because God is perfect, He wanted us to share in His perfection. He wanted us to elevate us to the highest level. So that this world is really the most perfect of all worlds. The world that God created through the name of Lakim, which seemingly appears to be a God created a very crippled world, a very limited world. A world that's so lacking. But in truth, it's the ultimate act of kindness. Because it's only in this world that God enabled us to reach the highest level. We can become an equal partner with Him in creation. So the gevura, the symptom, the hiding, the concealing, the creating of this seemingly flawed world, this seemingly limited world, this concealment that seems to hide the truth and distort the truth and cover up on the truth, it's really the ultimate act of kindness. Because it's only in this world that we can reach the ultimate level of perfection. When we come into this world and we perfect the world and we elevate the world and transform and change through Torah and mitzvot, we become partners and we become givers and creators just like Hashem. We become equal partners with Hashem and Creator. So the Elohim is really the ultimate act of kindness. So the purpose, the purpose of Elohim is all kindness. So he says, this tzimtzum, this contraction, this condensing, and this strength and restraint is actually all kindness. And it's, this is what creates the world, the kindness that creates the world that becomes the foundation of the world. This is the quality of Gavur, which is included in Chesed. I mean, this is the form of Gavur through which an act of Chesed is accomplished. He's saying, there's Gavura, the way it's included in Chesed, in kindness. <clears throat> For example, a person wants to look at the sun. You can't look at the sun directly, right? You have to look at the sun through a darkened glass. So the darkness, the darkened glass, covers up and conceals. But the truth is, it's really an act of chesed. It actually reveals. It doesn't conceal. It reveals. Because it's only by looking at the dark, through the darkened glass that you can see the sun. Otherwise, you couldn't see the sun. If you just looked directly at the sun, you wouldn't be able to look. You would be blinded. So it's the act of concealment which is actually a revealing. It's not concealing, it's revealing. It enables you to see, this, to, to, to see the light. And like the example of the, of the rainfall, the fact that the rainfall is divided into drops enables us to receive the rain. So it's actually a pure act of, it's a pure act of, of, of kindness. And with this he's trying to explain, because the question is, since God is his kindness is infinite, just that like God is infinite, His kindness is infinite, His self-expression is infinite, His ability to create is infinite. So too, God's restraint, God's Elohim, the name Elohim, God's self-restraint, should also be infinite and should create a world in which godliness is totally concealed, which is our world, which describes our world. In our world, godliness is totally concealed. We live in a world where if you... You have to fight 
and they're losing the fight. You have to fight to be able to mention the idea that the world is created. It seemed like such a foreign idea. The world is created. There's an intelligence. To... This is how deep and dark the concealment is. Since only God could create such a concealment, that it feels, feels totally natural to us that this book has no author, that this painting has no artist, this building has no builder, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no intelligent design. It's survival of the fittest, it just happened. Any logical person would just, it's so absurd, it's so ridiculous. And yet it feels totally natural. This is the ultimate concealment. With the truth, with godliness, the divine energy, the creative dynamic that, that is called creation is totally hidden and concealed and covered up. And it's so entrenched that it's totally submerged. The truth is totally submerged. Therefore, the only world which should have been created is our world, the, the material, the coarse, the egotistical, the arrogant world that we live in. Not the world of the angels. The supernal world, the sublime world, the spiritual world, the world of the souls, the world of the angels. Because over there, God, in those worlds, godliness is not concealed. They are separate entities, they are conscious beings, sentient beings, but it's luminous. It's in heaven, things are clear. They see godliness, they sense godliness. The angels are constantly connected, and it's like energy that's constantly connected to its source. So how does the name Elohim, how is it able to create a world in which God's reality is not totally concealed? Just like the name Hashem is infinite, God has the ability to create something from nothing, which is an expression of God's infinite ability. So too, the name Elohim should express itself in God's infinite ability to totally conceal Himself. So the only world that God should have created is our world, the material world. But how does that explain that God created all the upper worlds, the higher realms, which were also created through the combination of Hashem Elohim? Because were, if God's energy were totally revealed, all the worlds would be nullified. The angels would be nullified, the souls would be nullified. Wouldn't be anything, any, nothing would exist outside of God. So how is it possible to create all these upper worlds, these higher realms? And that's what he explains here, that the Gevura is part of the Chesed. It's included in the Chesed, in the kindness. So that every level of kindness, every creative ability, because God's creative ability is not only needed to create the material, the physical world, God's creative ability is also needed to create the angels. There's no difference to God between the angel and the amoeba and the ant and the tiny grain of sand. Everything is a creation of something from nothing. It takes the same, the same creative miracle for God to create a grain of sand as it does for him to create an angel. Because nothing exists but God. It's nothing. There's nothing but God. So for God to create something from nothing is nothing short of a miracle. God's infinite, miraculous, divine ability that we cannot begin to comprehend to create something from nothing. So every creative ability that God has to create, every world that God wants to create, has within it, it contains within it, the, the ability of Elohim, the ability to conceal enough to create that particular being. So an angel doesn't have the same screening, doesn't have the same concealment as the stone. The plant doesn't have the same concealment as the stone. 
because a plant has some sign of life. It grows in one place. Animals don't have the same concealment as plant, because animals roam. Human beings don't have the same concealment as animals. Human beings can imagine and could wonder and can think and speak. And angels don't have the same level of concealment as human beings, because they're more spiritual beings, heavenly beings. So every created being has the concealment that's perfectly matched for its level. That it has the concealment that will enable this being to come into existence. Whether it's a pure angel, luminous angel, spiritual, sentient being, or it's a grain of sand. So that's what he says, that the Gevura, the name of Lakim, the ability to restrain is included in the chesed, in the kindness. It comes together with the creative, the divine creative ability to create. So each, as he said earlier, every being has a name, has a Hebrew name, has a unique, particular divine energy. So that divine energy comes with its own, with its own ability to restrain just enough to be able to create that particular being. Whether it's a spiritual being, and down to the ultimate concealment, the most concealed of all worlds, which is our world, the material world, which co- aggressively covers up and hides any sense of something higher, of a root, of a source, of something spiritual, let alone something divine. We should continue in 897, the second paragraph, from the mutual inclusion. From the mutual inclusion of the attributes, their opposite natures notwithstanding, it is evident that he and his causations, i.e. his attributes, are one. For since they are in complete unity with him, they therefore unite with each other and are comprised of each other. As Eliyahu said at the passage beginning, Patak Eliyahu, in the introduction to to Kune Zohar, and you are he who binds them, i.e. the spherot and the attributes, together and unites them, and apart from you there is no unity among those attributes above. Okay, so he's saying this is proof that these two attributes, the attribute of chesed, of kindness, of God's self-expression, and the attribute of elikim, which is God's self-restraint, that, that they are divine attributes. Because we see that they work in tandem, they work together. You see that at the same time you have God's self-expression, but at the same time you also have God's self-restraint. And you see that the self-restraint is also, its whole theme is really one of love and kindness. And so much so that it's even part of the chesed, of the kindness, part of the expression of the kindness. Although we find this to be true even in human beings, we know that our attributes, in a human being, our attributes are multifaceted, are mixed. Animals are one-dimensional. A raven is cruel, it's always cruel. An eagle is kind and compassionate, it's always kind and compassionate. A human being, however, is flexible. A human being could utilize all the attributes and mix, ma- match and mix. For example, a parent who disciplines a child, that's an act of love. Technically, I'm utilizing an act of strength, an act of discipline, something tough, which externally, that's the way you treat your enemies. You're tough, but, on the, on the, but the truth is, why do parents discipline children? They don't discipline strangers because I don't care about a stranger. 
but I care about my child. And because I love them, because I care about them, because I'm not going to let them grow up like a Vildechaya, like an animal, because I love them, that is why I am going to restrain them and discipline them. And do something that's actually very difficult for the parent to do. As a matter of fact, what's the ultimate expression of love? What's the ultimate sign, the ultimate expression? What's the test? How do you know that that's true love? Everyone can say, I love. But what's the test? What's the acid test? How can you know that, that you truly love the other person? That it's genuine? Not just meaningless words, I love. What's the test? How can you tell that someone really loves someone? No, huh? Caring. Yeah, but how, how can... So I can say I care, but how do you know you really care? That's There's difficult something for, for you personally, for their benefit. Very good. King Solomon writes, he says, so a parent who withholds the rod from his child hates his child. The wisest of all men writes that if a parent withholds the rod and doesn't discipline his child, hates his child. Because what's the ultimate sign of love? The ultimate expression of love is if I love you, I'm going to do something that's good for you even though it's no good for me. I'm going to inconvenience myself. It's painful for me. It hurts me. But I know it's for your good. When a parent must discipline a child, who is in greater pain? The parent or the child? The parent. Because if not, then that's not discipline. That's abuse. And that parent shouldn't shouldn't lay a finger on the child. But when a parent loves a child, as most parents naturally do, and love their children more than they love themselves, and will do anything for their children, if you truly love your child, you are ready to do something that's painful for you. When the parent disciplines a child, it hurts the parent more than it hurts the child. And the child sees that in the eyes of the parents. What hurts the child is not the slap. What hurts the child is they see the pain in the parent's eyes. And you know, the child knows then that they are loved. The child feels safe. The child feels secure. The child knows that someone really cares about me, really cares about me, really pays attention to me, that I really matter to someone. If my parents are ready to go through such pain only because it's good for me, they feel that with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body, then you create a healthy child. Then you educate a healthy child, a child who knows that there are boundaries, that there are limits, that life is not a jungle and you don't just follow every whim and every instinct. Then the child feels safe and loved. There are boundaries. So that expression, that strength, and that discipline, which externally is the opposite of love, you would treat your enemy that way, not your best friend. No. It's only because of the love of the parent to the child. That is why I care how you behave. And therefore I'm going to discipline you. And therefore I'm going to do something that's painful for me. Because only because it's good for you. So even within a human being, we find that love could express itself in the opposite. A human being is flexible. I can choose to act in a way that's totally contrary to my nature. But love could express itself in what appears to be tough. We call tough love, strength, and vice versa. Sometimes kindness, <laughs> you can kill your enemy with kindness. Literally. A parent who doesn't care 
for their children, lets them play with knives. Oh, I'm so permissive. I'm so open-minded. I'm so understanding. I'm going to let my kid play with knives. Oh, the kid loves me. I'm so kind. I'm best friends with my child. That's the cruelest parent. That parent couldn't care less about his child. And the child knows that. The parent doesn't want to be bothered. Don't bother me. I don't have time for you. I don't have energy for you. I don't have, I don't have the zitzflesh. It takes too much energy. To discipline a child takes energy. I don't have the time. I don't want to invest the time. Here, let me give you another toy. Just get, get out of my sight. I'll give you whatever you want. Just don't bother me. That's the ultimate expression of cruelty. And the child knows that. You can't butter it up or cover it up. They know that you have no time for them. In other words, you have no value. I couldn't care less about you. Just stay out of my life. I'm too self-absorbed. That's an act of cruelty. In America, when we say, I love you, sometimes it gives you the chills. Because what it says is, live your life, live as you please, kill yourself, do, do what, just don't bother me. You live your life, I'll live my life. I don't care what you do. It, it's, it's cruelty. What we're, telling, what we're telling these people is, I don't care about you. Just live your life, do whatever you want, bang your head against the wall, just don't bother me. I'll do what I please, you do what you please. And that's what we call love. That's not love. That's cruelty. So even within a human being, we find that love and the opposite, love could express itself in what appears to be the opposite of love. And hatred or indifference could express itself in what appears to be kind. I'm so liberal. I'm so open-minded. I'm, anything goes. Everything goes. Do as you please. It's a free country. You have your rights. You have your right to kill yourself if you want. That's cold. That's cruel. That's vicious. But it's, the disguise is open-mindedness, liberalism. I'm an open-minded person. So why does he say that, that the fact that the chesed and the gevura are combined and are simultaneous, that this is a sign, this is a proof that these attributes are divine. We see even within a human being, we see that you can have the combination of seemingly two opposites, that kindness could express itself through strength, and hatred could express itself through what appears to be kindness. Nevertheless, there is a difference, there is a distinction. Because in these, anal- in these examples, what's overt is one attribute. But what motivates this attribute could be love. Love could motivate you to, to deliver tough love. So the motivation is love, but the vessel, the vehicle, the expression is one of toughness and discipline and strength. But in the case that we're discussing here, in the case of creation, we find both attributes are totally overt, are totally open. God is continuously and constantly creating the world, each and every moment, creating the world, something from nothing. And it takes a dramatic creative energy to constantly and continuously recreate the world from nothing. Otherwise, the world would instantly revert into nothing, as if it never existed. At the same time, within the same object, at the same time, you have the total expression of God's concealment, of God's restraint, of God's hiding himself. So this ability to have both simultaneous 
to have fully functioning expressions of what appears to be two, two opposites, kindness and strength, this is a divine attribute. Only God could contain opposites, could combine opposites, and only God could simultaneously express himself, kindly express self-expression and total concealment, self-restraint at the same time. At the, at the quantum level, you can have at the same time the electromagnetic level of radiation, you have particles and rays at the same time. Two opposites simultaneous. This is a divine expression. This proves that God and His attributes are one. And just like God is infinite and God is undefined, so too His attributes are undefined and they can both be fully operational, fully functional at the same time, simultaneously, within the same object. And yet... They're totally harmonious. Because as he said here, even the act of concealment is really an act of kindness. The act of concealment is almost an expression of kindness in this case. Because it is what enables us to receive the divine energy. To benefit from, from the divine energy. So this is, this is an expression of the divine. The whole act of creation, the whole act of existence is an expression of the divine, which is undefined, and God and His attributes are one, and therefore, only God is able to simultaneously create, express Himself in an infinite way, and at the same time, to totally conceal Himself in an infinite way. He should be totally concealed, at the same time, be totally present, be totally expressing Himself, at the same time, be totally hidden, be totally concealed, at the same time, in this world, in every, every created being especially in this world, where God is totally concealed through nature. This is, this is a divine wonder. This is a paradox. And the truth is, the bringing together of the body and the soul is also an act of, of wonder. So it's a paradox. It's bringing together two opposites, material and spiritual. And the body and the soul become one. So into wine, you don't know where the soul ends and the body begins. How can two opposites become totally one? Matter becomes energy. Energy is matter. They become totally intertwined, interconnected. Now we're beginning to understand, to appreciate the body-soul connection. The interplay between the body and the soul. The soul and the body. Each one has an effect on the other. If your body is ill, it affects your soul. If your soul is healthy, your attitudes are healthy, it affects your body. Today, scientists are discovering genes the faith gene and that gene, but the body and the soul are so intertwined and so connected that they become parallel. Everything in the body has a counterpart in the soul. Everything in the soul has a counterpart in the body. So it's, it's no surprise that everything in the soul should be manifest in the body, and every manifestation in the body is a reflection of the soul. Scientists use that as a proof that everything is biological, everything is material. There is no soul, there is no spiritual. But the truth is on the contrary. It just proves how the body and the soul are so parallel, are so intertwined, are so interconnected, that, what, that whatever you find in the body, you know, is, is a reflection of what's going on in the soul. And everything in the soul ultimately is manifest physically in the body because the two are interlinked, interconnected. So this is the ultimate expression of God's wonder, God's ability to create to bring together opposites, body and soul. Our life, our body and soul is the ultimate expression of God's wonder. 
But this is the power of nature, that it's all covered up. We don't jump out of our skin. We don't get excited. We don't even realize. We don't even pay attention to the miracle and the wonder of our life, of the body and soul connection. We just take ourselves so for granted, we don't even pay attention to the inner, to the soul, to the energy, let alone to the divine. Let alone the whole combination of body and soul is the ultimate paradox, the ultimate miracle. We should be jumping out of our skin. But we don't pay attention, we don't notice. Instead of being inspired and transformed and realizing that we are an expression of godliness, the ultimate expression of godliness, we become coarsened, disconnected, consciously disconnected. This is part of the cover-up. So the fact that there could be such a dramatic divine energy that's constantly creating us, within us, and we are within the energy, and at the very same time there could be this, this divine energy that only God has the ability to, to totally conceal and cover up in this truth simultaneously. This is a divine manifestation. Only God can create such opposite. On the one hand, the divine energy must constantly be in everything that exists, from every atom to every amoeba to every grain of sand, to the angel. And on the other hand, if the divine energy would cease, would stop creating for one moment, everything would cease to exist if it never existed. And at the same time, the divine energy must constantly be totally concealed because if the divine energy would be revealed, it would also cease to exist. How do you have these two opposites simultaneous? In full force, full operation, within the same object. And you don't know where the kindness begins and the strength ends. Because the strength, as he just explained, is also really kindness. It enables us to exist. It's not there, it's not meant to hide, to conceal. It's meant to enable us to exist, to create the world that God wanted. To give us the biggest gift of all. To give us the ability to become partners with God in creation. To give us the freedom of choice. To earn, to achieve, to accomplish, to create, to mend, to fix. The ultimate gift that we can earn and we can become a full partner with God in creation. So really, even the concealment is also kindness. So this is a divine expression, a divine manifestation. Think the concealment be the ultimate in kindness? Yes. Not even just kindness. The ultimate makes it that much more difficult. If, if, a, if, it, if, it, if God were to make it simple to keep mitzvahs in Torah, then, you know, then you know it would be would be much. It wouldn't. There would be the same satisfaction when people actually do do the things that they're supposed to do. If they're surrounded by that, that what that they're surrounded by a world of you know, not Torah mitzvahs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said. And that's the point he's making here. The Zohar says, why did the soul come down to this world? Because the soul in paradise, the Zohar refers to the level of the soul of paradise as bread of shame. In paradise, whatever the soul has is bread of shame. Bread of shame is bread that you haven't earned versus everything you accomplish in this world. Every accomplishment you accomplish in this world, every movement forward that you make in this world, you've earned it. You've achieved it. It's honest. It's a difference between earning a million dollars and winning the lottery. It should happen to all of us. But when you earn, you, you, you feel you've deserved it. You've paid a price. You went out there. You extended yourself. You took a risk. And then it proves you've proven yourself. You feel accomplished. While it was given to you Free, it's called bread of shame. The difference between someone who inherited his money and someone who earned his money. 
you know, if someone who inherits his money and never has to earn it, in many ways it could emasculate you. Because you don't have to prove yourself, you don't have to do anything. It's only when you accomplish that you really feel good. So, yes, so that's the ultimate kindness that Hashem sends the soul into this world where the soul has to struggle, the neshama has to struggle, and everything is a struggle, and every achievement is hard-earned and difficult, and there are tests, constant tests, and you have to constantly exert yourself, extend yourself, push yourself, and you stumble and you pick yourself up and go forward. And this is the ultimate kindness. Yes, so even the strength and the restraint is really an expression of kindness. So this is because these attributes are divine, therefore they are totally, they work in harmony and they help out each other and they work together to achieve the one goal, the one theme, which is to bring godliness into this world. Okay, continue. Zeliyahu said in the passage uh, beginning Patak Eliyahu in the introduction of Tikkunay Zohar, and you are he who binds them, i.e. the Sephirah and the attributes, together and unites them, and apart from you there is no unity among those attributes above. The Alta Rebbe will say a little later that since the divine name Elohim signifying the attribute of Simpson and concealment is one with the name Havaya, it follows that the concealment brought about by the name Elohim is not a true concealment, for an entity cannot conceal its own self. Created beings are therefore absolutely nullified in relation to their source. Okay, so now, now we're going back to the first chapter. He started out with the verse in Deuteronomy, that you should know and you should take to your heart that Hashem is Elohim, and that there's nothing but God. And the question he asked was, if you learn the verse superficially, the verse is telling you that you should know there's only one God and not two gods. And he says, you should know there's only one God in the heaven and the earth. God is God in the heaven above and the earth below. But don't you think, lest you think that there's another God hiding maybe underneath the water. He says, hey, no, there's no other God. Which is... Ridiculous. Why would a person think if God is God in heaven and earth, why would you think maybe another God? So much so that he has to say, think about it, take it to heart. It's an obvious and simple thing. So that was the question that he asked. Now he's coming to answer that question to explain the verse. Based on what we just explained, now he's coming to answer the question and to explain the verse in a way that makes sense. The other part is, What's the connection between the first half of the verse and the last half of the verse? The first half of the verse is you should know, you should take to heart that Hashem is Elohim. The two names, Hashem and Elohim, which signify two different things. One signifies the sun, one signifies the shield, one signifies God's kindness, God's infinite kindness, God's infinite creative ability, and one signifies God's infinite ability to restrain, to hide, and to conceal. One represents God's infinite ability to create. Hoive, Yudke Vavke, comes to the word Hoive, Havia, to create. And the other one, Elohim, is, Elohim has a numerical value of Ateva, which means nature, which covers up, which is entrenched and covers up and submerges, covers up and hides and conceals on the divine energy. And the Torah is telling us that even though they appear to be two opposites, Hashem and Elohim, but as we just said, that in God they are totally combined and they work totally in harmony and they're both one and the same. Even after they had the French, even after Hashem 
is active as Hashem, as the creative energy, and even after Zalokim is active as the hiding energy, the restraining energy, nevertheless, they're both one. Okay, what does that have to do with the end of the verse? There's nothing but God. Now he's going to explain the whole verse. This then is the meaning of the scriptural phrase, and take it unto your heart that Havaya is Elohim. Concerning this first, the question was asked in the first chapter, would it occur to you that there is a God dwelling in the waters beneath the earth, so that it is, a nece- so that it is necessary to talk him so strongly and negate this thought by stating that one should take it unto your heart? According to the explanation given here, this question is answered, the statement that, in the heavens above and upon the earth below, there is no other. Is not intended. Is not intended to negate the existence of another God. Rather, the verse is telling us that there is nothing else besides God. He alone enjoys true existence. Everything else is totally nullified in relation to Him. And for this concept to be understood well, one must indeed take it unto his heart. That is, these two names are actually. Okay, so he's saying that the, the verse doesn't come to tell us that there's only one God and not two gods. The verse is coming to tell us that there's only one reality. Nothing exists besides God. Now that's counterintuitive. That's not something that you know naturally and instinctively. So the verse must tell us you should know, understand this very well, internalize it, truly get this concept, and then take it to heart. Really internalize it. That Hashem Malakim, there's no other reality but God. And now he explains. That is, these two names are actually one, i.e., although Havaya represents Chesed and Revelation, and Elohim represents Simpson and Concealment, they are, never le- they are nevertheless truly one. For even the name Elohim, which conceals and contracts the light of the divine life force that is responsible for creation, is a quality of Chesed, just like the name Havaya. For the attributes of the Holy One, blessed be He, unite with Him in a complete unity. And He and His name are one, for His attributes are His name, i.e., the attributes correspond to specific names. Since this is so, i.e., once you understand that Elohim is one with Havaya, you will consequently know that in the heavens above and on earth below, there exists nothing else besides God. So now the whole verse makes sense. First thing he's telling us is Hashem Hu Halakim. It's the same. Hashem is an expression of God, and Elohim is an expression of God. God's ability to create is an expression of God's infinite self. And God's ability to hide and to conceal and to restrain is also an expression of God's infinite self. Therefore, since they're both an expression of God, therefore, there is nothing. Nothing else exists but God. Because for God, there is no concealment. You can't hide, cover up on yourself. For yourself, there's no concealment. As we discussed, the halacha, the halacha states, let's say if a person's yarmulke blew away, Someone can come and put his hand on your head, and that's counting as a, counted as a yamaka. The question is, could you put your hand on your head? Is that counted as a yamaka as a covering? No, because no, you can't cover up on yourself. There's no covering. If someone else covers you, it's a covering. But you cover yourself, there is no covering. Someone else can't see you, but for you, there's no covering. You can't cover up on yourself, because you're covering yourself with yourself. I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen from guys who don't have... Because they have sleeves. What? They're covering with the sleeves. Uh, okay, fair enough. But the hand, they can cover yourself with yourself. And that's the analogy we also discussed with the teacher who's trying to communicate with the student and the teacher is far removed from the students. And the teacher must use a parable in order to communicate with the students. 
Now the student only understands the parable. The student doesn't understand the depth behind the parable. But the teacher, while he's teaching the parable, he sees through the parable. For him, there's no concealment. Why? Because it's his parable. The parable came from within him. The idea comes from within him. The idea that the parable is trying to contain, that's condensed inside this parable, is his idea. The parable is his. So he sees through the parable. Within the parable, he sees... He sees, the, uh, he sees the whole concept. There is no concealment whatsoever. So too, since God is hiding, who is hiding? It's God. And God and His attributes are one. So the same God that's expressing Himself and creating, the same God is also hiding Himself. Because God has the ability, the infinite, miraculous ability, divine ability to totally hide. But since it's God concealing over Himself, covering up Himself, there is no concealment. For God, there is no concealment. So from God's point of view, from the divine energy's point of view, the divine energy that's creating, the grain of sand, the amoeba, everything that exists from the heavens of heavens down to this world, from the divine energy's point of view, nothing exists. There's nothing but God. Because everything is being created each and every moment. The divine energy, the Hebrew name, is within each and every object, constantly creating it. So it's like the light of the sun that's within the sun. It's totally within the source. And therefore it's a non-entity. Yes, God hides and conceals and enables us to feel separate and independent and egotistical and separate beings. But this concealment is only for us. Just like the teacher's parable only conceals for the student, not for the teacher. So for the teacher, from God's point of view, there is no concealment because God is hiding with himself. So he's covering up in himself. So for God, there is no hiding. So from God's point of view, nothing changes. The divine energy is constantly creating all of existence, constantly bringing everything into existence, and therefore, nothing really exists. There's nothing but God. God is everything. God is the energy, and God is the object that's created. There's, no, there's nothing separate from God. There's no indep- not only there's no independent reality, there's no reality, period. It's not that there's no independent reality, we're all dependent on God. God is powerful. No, there's, there is nothing but God. It's God concealing himself and God... The power of the creator is in the creation. Not only the power of the creation is in the creation, like the power of the soul is within the body, as we're going to learn in a few minutes. It's not the power of God is in creation. There is no creation. From God's point of view, there is no creation. There's nothing else but God. That's the ultimate, deepest level of unity. When you talk about the unity of God, it blows your mind away. The Jewish concept of unity is totally mind-boggling. It blows your mind away. It's not... You won't find this in any other religion, any other concept of unity, the ultimate, absolute unity of God, the Torah expresses, there is no other reality but God. From God's point of view, there is no creation. All there is is God. Nothing changed. Just like God was alone before creation, He's alone after creation. Because what is creation? It's all God. It's God creating, and God hiding Himself. And for God, there's no concealment. So as far as God is concerned, there's no concealment. It's God's energy. Everything is really nothing other than than God. So the very substance of everything is God. There's nothing else. Nothing else exists. There's a total unity. Unity doesn't only mean there's one God, there's one power, there's one might, there's one force. There is no other existence, period. 
From God's point of view, all that exists is himself. And this is the sixth sense that every Jew has. This is the holy soul, the divine essence, the pintle yid, the faith that we inherit from our Jewish mothers or those who converted halachically. They have this sixth sense, this faith, that's able to intuit, intuitive, is able to get this unity of God, this absolute, total unity of God, where nothing exists but God. There's no I, there's nothing outside of God, nothing exists. All there is is God. This is the deepest depth of Achtus Hashem, the mitzvah of the unity of God. To believe that God is one. And that's why the verse says, you have to know this, you have to really get it, it has to click inside, and you have to take it to your heart, every day, because it's counterintuitive, it's mind-boggling, it blows your mind away. What do you mean, I, I don't exist? What do you mean, the, the grain of sand doesn't exist? What do you mean, we know it exists, it's here, what do you mean? It's not a, and yet God is one and there's nothing else but God. <clears throat> this is something you have to think about and meditate on very deeply. And that's what we say every day, Shema Yisrael, the ultimate Jewish affirmation, the holiest verse. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The last verse on a Jew's lips after 120 years. Because this expresses the essence of a Jew. The belief in Hashem Echad. God is one. There is no other reality but God. And if a Jew really internalizes radically transforms your whole perspective on yourself, on life, on the world. Nothing could be in contradiction to God. Nothing could be in contradiction to the Torah. Nothing. How could anyone, well, I can't keep the Torah. It's not realistic. It's not practical. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Absurd. What do you mean it's not practical? Nothing exists but God. There's nothing else but God. So it's imaginary. It's an illusion. If you think that it's not practical or realistic to live by the Torah, everything in the Torah, it's, it's delusionary. Because the truth is that God's unity permeates everything. There's nothing but God. So how can anything be in contradiction, in conflict with the Torah, with God's will? It's just in your imagination. There are certain scientists and sciences who argue that the world is older than 6,000 years, or 5,000 or 765. Now, you know, the things that are going to, not, not, not so much, you know, Darwin and evolution, which is not much, there's no real scientific proof behind it, it's just a theory, which is the basis for a lot of scientific thought, but in and of itself has never been conclusively proven. But things like the Ice Age, uh, dinosaurs, uh, a variety of things along those lines. Um, is that part of the concealment as well, or there's further scientific and forward discussion that we have to go into understanding that? Like, is the perception that the world is older than 6,000 years part of the concealment? Yes. Although, although it's not, if you look purely scientifically, you know, the oldest thing that we have in the world is not older than a few thousand years. Um, civilization is only a few thousand years old. So it's a leap of faith to believe based on insufficient evidence because, you know, the carbon dating, it's all, which is based on assumptions that we have no way to scientifically prove any of these assumptions. The assumptions is if the world is exactly the way it is now, maybe during creation... The heat is so intense that everything, everything just fast-forwarded. Adam was created a full-fledged man. 
the analogy that we used earlier, the closest analogy that we human beings have to creation is when a person, let's say, daydreams. And you create, in your mind, you're daydreaming, you create characters, events, stories. You imagine a whole film in your head. Now, let's say you want to create a person, a personality, Yankel. Does Yankel have to, do, you have to, do they have to go through a birth? And you have to diaper them, and they have to go to school. And you create them fully-fledged, as they are, full-blown, right then where you need them and when you want them. You're creating. You, you, there's nothing limiting you. There's no rules, there's no laws. So if you understand, and that's just, an, we don't create anything, it's just imaginary. But when God creates, God has the ability to create. So when God creates, God is not limited. So why can't God create a world which coal? Yes, which takes maybe millions of years. Right. But God created the coal. It's already, it's already ready. It's mature. Or the star that's already dying or dead. It's all in there. It's all, it's all formed already or shaped. It's already in the process. God does not limit it. You don't have to wait billions of years for it to develop. God creates the world full-blown. Everything is right in the middle. Everything is, is where it needs to be. Especially the whole purpose of creation is man. And God created a man very, very quickly. So there's no limits. I think we're, we're, we're looking at it, we're trying to explain it because we don't really grasp the idea of creation. So you're trying to apologize and rationalize and explain. Creation should make sense logically and rationally and scientifically. The whole creation is a miraculous divine phenomenon. God is not limited or bound by any rules or laws. God is creating everything. Therefore, why can't God create in 24 hours exactly as the Torah says it is, very literally. Just like the Torah says literally, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, keep Shabbos, because I created the world in six days, the seventh day I rested. It means very literally. I actually wasn't even arguing for the point of view of questioning Torah. I was saying if more on the line of all these other theories that have come up, are they part of the part of the, the, the symptom to allow people to believe that perhaps, you know, to kind of make it a little bit more difficult for people to believe that the world was created in seven days. And in essence, it's all part of the same aura to give people the perception, ah, it's all nonsense, look, you know, look what the scientists are proving. And then your faith has to be that much stronger to say, you know, these are certain facts that I know to be self-evident based on my faith and form. Yes, absolutely. Because even the analogy of the human body, from my own flesh, I know God, my own experience, we know that the soul is really dominant. We're not biologically driven. On the contrary, the body is totally nullified before the soul. The body doesn't even sense itself. A healthy person doesn't even sense his body. You become totally one. The body becomes totally one with the soul, an expression of the soul. The soul wants to move. The body moves. So everything in the physical, in the body, is just a reflection of the spiritual. So too, from our microcosm, we should extrapolate to the macrocosm. And this is illogical, that the world also has a soul, which is God. And therefore, everything that happens in the body originates in the soul. So to explain, try to explain everything from a purely biological, materialistic point of view, survival of the fittest, without any taking into consideration that everything is just really originates in the soul and the spiritual, and everything happens in the physical is just the tip of the iceberg, the symptom of what's really happening in the soul. Why does a person have 248 limbs in the body? Because you have 248 limbs in your soul powers in your soul. Why do you have an eye? And why is the eye shaped exactly the way it's shaped? Because the soul has ability to see. So the body matches the soul's ability perfectly. So the real dynamic is the soul. And the body is just a reflection 
an expression of the soul. And if that's true on a personal level, surely that's true on a global level. So instead of trying to explain everything mechanically and technically, you have to explain everything. Everything originates in the soul, in the divine. Why is something happening? Why is there rain? Why is there snow? Rain signifies something very, very meaningful, very special in, 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 the, in the divine. And it manifests itself in physical rain. It manifests itself in physical snow. Everything that happens, the Talmud tells us when there's a tsunami, it's an expression of something that's going on in heaven. Nothing just happens just like that. What we see is just the tip of the iceberg, an expression of what's, what's happening spiritually. But the scientists, and this is part of the symptom, are like the five blind men who are touching the elephant, and this one swears that the elephant is a rope because it's touching the, 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 the tail. You know, and this one swears that the elephant is a tree trunk because it's, it's, the blind man is touching the, the leg of the animal, and this one is touching the nose of the animal, and they're all wrong. So the scientists are like the blind men who are looking at life externally, superficially, just looking at the body, at the material, totally ignoring the soul, which is the real story, the inner, the dynamic, what's really going on. And they're trying to explain everything in a very technical, mechanical, external, superficial, cause and effect, logical explanation, which doesn't explain anything, by the way. It's just a description. It doesn't explain anything. Just a description of what happens. So this is the ultimate symptom. This is the nature that totally covers up, aggressively covers up and conceals on the fact that there's a soul. When in our own personal experience, we all sense that there's a soul. And the soul is it's what's dominant. It's not the body. A, a body is a corpse. What is our life? Our life is not our body. The life is the soul. That's the soul of the party. That's, that's what makes us move. That's what makes us think. It's not biological. It's spiritual. It's energy. Pure energy. And the matter is totally nullified to the energy. And yet when it comes to the world, the scientist denies that there is a soul, denies that there is an energy, and tries to explain everything in purely biological, materialistic, external, superficial, cause and effect explanations which really don't explain nothing. So yes, this is part of the tims. This is part of the concealment. And so much to the extent, at least the early philosophers, at least they, they were really smart people. They really had minds. They had brains. They acknowledge that there's a God. You see a book. The book has no author. If someone told you that Shakespeare was written by a monkey, sat at a typewriter, you'd be insulted. And yet today's scientists tell you with a straight face, evolution, big bang, there's no intelligent design, it just happened. This infinitely complex universe that with every passing day we're discovering how infinitely complex it is, all of this just happened by chance? It's insulting. It's not even logical. And yet, if you dare introduce the children the concept that there is creation, there's tremendous resistance. But there's a, there's a debate going on today. Exactly. So this shows you how deep the symptom is. The concealment is so thick. The hiding. God did such a good job in hiding the truth. The obvious truth. While in truth, it's really everything that exists is, is dynamic, is vibrant is a continuous process, is an expression of God's infinite creative ability. And the fact that God could combine the matter and energy and the physical and the spiritual and his self-revelation, the self-concealment, and combine the body and the soul. And yet, you look at the world, there's no story. <laughs> there's nothing to get excited about. You see nothing. Totally submerged, quiet, natural. feels totally natural. 
Oh, Mother Nature. Oh, it's just on its own. Oh, we're just here. No reason, no rhyme, no explanation. No explanation necessary. This is, this is the ultimate concealment. Only God has that power to totally conceal and hide as if, as if there's nothing going on. The greatest story ever. Existence, creation. The combining of two opposites. Matter and energy. And Look at the world. No, there's nothing here. I don't see any story here. I don't see anything. All I see is I. It, it, it's, it's absurd. So yes, this is the ultimate sign of the divine ability to hide. The tzimtzum. That God has totally concealed in order to give us that freedom of choice. In order to give us that ability to reveal godliness, to illuminate the world, to reveal godliness within the world, to become a partner with God in creation, to earn, to achieve, to accomplish on our own, to give us the deepest satisfaction of earning it and achieving it through our choices, through our sacrifices, through our effort. And then we become partners with Hashem in creation. Um, there's a great debate going on today in America about God, probably greater than there's been in 60, 70 years. It's not Jews versus Christians. It's people who are observant versus people that are secular. You have to know what the real argument is. The real argument really boils down to if there's a God in this world, then you have to live like a mensch. Then you're responsible for your behavior, responsible for your actions. But if you come from a monkey, then you can live like a monkey. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.